Chapter 6 of Till We Have Faces. She's coming to her mind again, said my father's voice. Take that side of her, Fox, and we'll get her into the chair. The two of them were lifting me. My father's hands were gentler than I expected. I have found since that a soldier's hands often are. The three of us were alone. Here, lass, this'll do you good, he said, when they had put me in the chair, holding a cup of wine to my lips. Fock, you're spilling it like a baby. Take it easy. So that's better. If there's a bit of raw meat still to be had in this dog hole of a palace, you must lay it on your bruises. And look, daughter, you shouldn't have crossed me like that. A man can't have women, and his own daughters, what's worse, meddling in business. There was a sort of shame about him, whether for beating me or for giving up Psyche without a struggle, who knows. He seemed to me to be a very vile, pitiable king. He set down the cup. The thing has to be done, he said. Screaming and scrabbling won't help. Why, the fox here was just telling me it's done even in your darling Greeklands, which I begin to think I was a fool ever to let you hear of. Master, said the fox, I had not finished telling you. It is very true that a Greek king sacrificed his own daughter, but afterwards his wife murdered him, and his son murdered the wife, and those below drove the son mad. At this the king scratched his head and looked very blank. That's just like the gods, he muttered, drive you to do a thing, and then punish you for doing it. The comfort is, I've no wife or son, Fox. I'd got my voice again now. King, I said, you can't mean to do it. Istra is your daughter. You can't do it. You have not even tried to save her. There must be some way, surely, between now and the day. Listen to her, says the king. You fool, it's tomorrow that they offer her. I was within an inch of fainting again. To hear this was as bad as to hear that she must be offered at all. As bad, it was worse. I felt that I had no sorrow till now. I felt if she could be spared only for a month, a month, why a month was like an eternity. We should all be happy. It's better so, dear, whispered the fox to me in Greek. Better for her and for us. What are you mumbling about, fox, said the king. You both look at me as if I were some sort of two-headed giant they frightened children with. And what'd you have me do? What would you do yourself, Fox, with all your cleverness, if you were in my place? I'd fight about the day first. I'd get the, the, a little time somehow. I'd say the prince, princess was at the wrong time of month to be a bribe. I'd say I'd been warned in a dream not to make the great offering till the new moon. I'd bribe men to swear that the priest had cheated over the lots. There's half a dozen men across the river who'd hold, who hold land from him and don't love their landlord. I'd make a party. Anything to gain time. Give me ten days, and I've a secret messenger to the king of Fars. I'd offer him all he wants without war. Offer him anything if he'd come in and save the princess. Offer him Gloam itself and my own crown. What? snarled the king. Be a little less free with other men's wealth, you'd best. <laughs> but, master, I'd lose not only my throne, but my life to save the princess if I were king and a father. Let us fight, arm the slaves, and promise them their freedom if they play the man. We can make a stand, you, we in your household, even now. At the worst, we should all die innocent, better than going down yonder with a daughter's blood on your hands. The king flung himself once more into his chair and began speaking with a desperate patience, like a teacher to a very stupid child. I'd seen the fox do it with Redival. I am a king. I've asked you for counsel. Those who counsel kings commonly tell them how to strengthen or save their kingship and their land. That is what counseling a king means. And your counsel is that I should throw my crown over the roof, sell my country to Fars, and get my throat cut. 
You'll tell me next that the best way to cure a man's headache is to cut off his head. I see, Master, said the fox. I ask your pardon. I had forgotten that your own safety was the thing we must work for at all costs. I, who knew the fox so well, could see of such a look at his face that he could not have done the king much more dishonor if he had spat on him. Indeed, I had often seen him look at the king like that, and the king never knew. I was determined he should know something now. King, said I, the blood of the gods is in us. Can such a house as ours bear the shame? How will it sound if men say, when you are dead, that you took shelter behind a girl to save your own life? You hear her, fox, you hear her, said the king, and then she wonders that I black her eyes. I'll not say mar her face, for that's impossible. Look, mistress, I'd be sorry to beat you twice in a day, but don't try me too far. He leaped up and began pacing the floor again. Death and scabs, he said. You make a man mad. Anyone would think it's your daughter they were giving to the brute. Sheltering behind a girl, you say. No one seems to remember whose girl she is. She's mine, fruit of my own body. My loss. It's I who have a right to rage and blubber if anyone has. Why, what did I get beget her for if I can't do what I think best with my own? What is it to you? There is some cursed cunning that I haven't yet smelled out behind all your sobbing and scolding. You're not asking me to believe that any woman, let alone such a fright as you, has much love for a pretty half-sister. It's not in nature, but I'll sift you yet. I don't know whether he really believed this or not, but it is possible he did. He could believe anything in his moods, and everyone in the palace knew more than he about the life of us girls. Yes, he said more quietly now, it is I who should be pitied. It's I who am asked to give up part of myself, but I'll do my duty. I'll not ruin the land to save my own girl. The pair of you have talked me into making too much work about it. It has happened before. I'm sorry for the girl, but the priest's right. Ungut must have her due. What's one girl? Why, what would one man be against the safety of us all? It's only sense that one should die for many. It happens in every battle. Wine and passion had brought my strength back. I rose from my chair and found that I could stand. Father, said I, you are right. It is fit that one should die for the people. Give me to the brute instead of Istra. The king, without a word, came up to me, took me, softly enough, by the wrist, and led me the whole length of the room to where his great mirror hung. You might wonder that he did not keep it in his bedchamber, but the truth is that he was too proud of it for that and wanted every stranger to see it. It had been made in some distant land, and no king in our parts had one to match it. Our common mirrors are false and dull. In this you could see your perfect image. As I had never been in the pillar room alone, I had never looked in it. He stood me before it, and we saw our two selves side by side. Ungit asked for the best in the land as her son's bride, he said, and you'd give her that? He held me there a full minute in silence, perhaps, he thought, I would weep or turn my eyes away. At last, he said, now be off. A man can't keep pace with your moods today. Get a beefsteak for your face. The fox and I must be busy. As I came out of the pillar room, I first noticed the pain in my side. I had twisted myself somehow in my fall. But I forgot it again when I saw how in that little time our house had changed. It seemed crowded. All the slaves, whether they had anything to do or not, were walking about and gathering in knots, wearing looks of importance, chattering under their breath, too, with a sort of mournful cheerfulness. They always will when there's some great news in a house, and now it troubles me not at all. 
There were many of the temple guard lounging in the porch, some temple girls sitting in the hall. From the courtyard came the smell of incense. The sacrifice was going on. Ungit had taken the house. The reek of holiness was everywhere. At the foot of the staircase, who should meet me but Redival, running to me in all in tears and a great babble pouring out of her mouth. Oh, sister, sister, how dreadful. Oh, poor Psyche. But only it's only Psyche, isn't it? They're not going to do it to all of us, are they? I never thought I didn't mean any harm. It wasn't I. And oh, oh, oh. I put my face close up to her and said very, very low but distinctly, Redival, if there is one single hour when I am queen of Gloam, or even mistress of this house, I'll hang you by the thumbs at a slow fire till you die. Oh, cruel, cruel, sobbed Redival. How can you say such things when I'm so miserable already? Sister, don't be angry. Comfort me. I pushed her away from me and passed on. I had known Redival's tears ever since I could remember. They were not wholly feigned, nor much dearer than ditchwater. I know now, as I felt sure then, that she had carried tattle about Psyche to the house of Ungat and that with malice. It's likely enough she meant less mischief than she had done. She never knew how much she meant, and was now in her fashion sorry, but a new brooch, much more a new lover, would have had her drying her eyes and laughing in no time. As I came to the top of the stairs, for we have upper rooms and even galleries in the palace, it is not like a Greek house. I was a little out of breath, and the pain in my side came on me worse. I seemed to be somewhat lame in one foot, too. I went on with all the haste I could up to the five-sided room where they had shut Psyche up. The door was bolted on the outside. I have used that room for a courteous prison myself, and an armed man stood before it. It was Bardia. Bardia, I panted. Let me in. I must see the Princess Istra. He looked at me kindly but shook his head. It can't be done, lady, he said. But Bardia, you can't you can lock us both in. There's no way out but the door. That's how all escapes begin, lady. I am sorry for you and for the other princess, but it can't be done. I'm under the sternest orders. Bardia, I said with tears, my left hand to my side, for the pain was bad now. It's her last night alive. He looked away from me and said again, I'm sorry. <clears throat> I turned for him, him without another word. Though he was the kindest face, always excepting the fox I had seen that day, for the moment I hated him more than my father or the priest or even Redival. What I did next shows how near I was to madness. I went as fast as I could to the bedchamber. I knew the king had arms there. I took a plain, good sword, drew it, looked at it, and weighed it in my hand. It was not at all too heavy for me. I felt the edges and the point. They were what I then thought sharp, though a smart soldier would not have called them so. Quickly I was back at Psyche's door. Even in my woman's rage I had man enough about me to cry out, Ward yourself, Bardia, before I fell on him. It was, of course, the craziest attempt for a girl who has never had a weapon in her hand before. Even if I had known my work, the lame foot and the pain in my side, to breathe deep was agony, disabled me. Yet I made him use some of his skill, chiefly, of course, because he was not fighting to hurt me. In a moment he had twisted my sword out of my grip. I stood before him with my hand pressed harder than ever to my side, all in a muck sweat and a tremble. His brow was dry and his breathing unchanged. It had been as easy as that for him. The knowledge that I was so helpless came over me like a new woe, or gathered the other woe up into itself. I burst into utterly childish weeping. 
like Redival. It's a thousand pities, lady, that you weren't a man, said Bardia. You've a man's reach and a quick eye. There's none of the recruits who would do as well in their first attempt. I'd like to have the training of you. It's a thousand... Ah, Bardia, Bardia, I sobbed. If only you'd killed me, I'd be out of my misery now. No, you wouldn't, said he. You'd be dying, not dead. It's only in tales that a man dies the moment the steel's gone in and come out. Unless, of course, you swap off his head. I couldn't talk no more at all now. The whole world seemed to me to be in my weeping. Curse it, said Barty up. I can't bear this. There were tears in his own eyes now, for he was a very tender man. I wouldn't mind so much if the one weren't so brave and the other so beautiful. Here, lady, stop it. I'll risk my life and Ungut's wrath, too. I gazed at him, but was still not able to speak. I'd give my own life for the girl in there, if it would do any good. You may have wondered why I, the captain of the guard, am standing here like a common sentry. I wouldn't let anyone else do it. I thought if the poor girl called, or if I had to go into her for any reason, I'd be, a homelier, I'd be homelier for her than a stranger. She sat on my knees when she was little. I wondered, to do, I wondered do the gods know what it feels like to be a man. Will you let me in? Said she, I said. On one condition, lady, you must swear to come out when I knock. It's quiet up here now, but there'll be comings and goings later. There'll be two temple girls coming to her presently. I was warned of that. I'll give you as long as I can, but I must be sure of your coming out when I give the sign. Three knocks, like this. I'll come out at once if when you do that. Swear it, lady, on here on my sword. I swore it. He looked to left and right and did back the bolt and said, Quick, in you go. Heaven comfort you both. Chapter 7 The window in that room is so small and high up that men need lights there at noon. That is why it can serve as a prison. It was built as a second story of a tower which my great-grandfather began and never finished. Psyche sat upon the bed with a lamp burning beside her. Of course, I was at once in her arms and saw this only in a flash, but the picture, Psyche, a bed, and a lamp, is everlasting. Long before I could speak, she said, Sister, what have they done to you? Your face, your eye. He has been beating you again. Then I realized somewhat slowly that all this time she had been petting and comforting me as if it were I who was the child and the victim. And this, even in the midst of the great anguish, made its own little eddy of pain. It was so unlike the sort of love that used to be between us at our happy times. She was so quick and tender that she knew at once what I was thinking and at once called me Maya, the old baby's name that the fox had taught her. It was one of the first words she ever learned to say. Maya, Maya, tell me, what has he done to you? Oh, Psyche, said I, what does it matter? If only he had killed me, if only they would take me instead of you. But she would not be put off. She forced the whole tale out of me. How could one deny her? Wasting on it the little time we had. Sister, no more, I said at last. What is it to me? What is he to either of us? I'll not shame your mother or mine to say that he's not our father. If so, the name father is a curse. I'll believe now that he would hide behind a woman in battle. And then it was a kind of terror to me. She smiled. She had wept very little, and mostly, I think, for love and pity of me. Now she sat tall and queenly and still. There was no sign about her of coming death, except that her hands were very cold. Orwell, she said, you make me think I have learned the fox's lessons better than you. Have you forgotten what we are to say to ourselves every morning? Today I shall meet cruel men, 
cowards and liars, the envious and the drunken. They will be like that because they do not know what is good from what is bad. This is an evil which has fallen upon them, not upon me. They are to be pitied, not... She was speaking with the loving mimicry of the fox's voice. She could do this as well as Bata did it badly. Oh, child, how can... But I was choked again. All she was saying seemed to be so light, so far away from our sorrow. I felt we ought not be talking that way, not now. What I thought it would be better to talk of, I did not know. Maya, said Psyche, you must make me a promise. You, you'll not do anything outrageous? You'll not kill yourself? You mustn't, for the fox's sake. We have been three loving friends. Why must she say bear friends? Now it's only he and you. You must hold together and stand the closer. No, Maya, you must, like soldiers in a hard battle. Oh, your heart is of iron, I said. As for the king, give him my duty, or whatever is proper. Bardia is a prudent and courteous man. He'll tell you what dying girls ought to say to fathers. One would not seem rude or ignorant at the last. But I can send the king no other message. The man is a stranger to me. I know the hen's wife baby better than him. And for Redival, send her your curse. And if the dead can't, no, no. She also do does what she doesn't know. Not even for you, Psyche, do that. will I pity Redival, whatever the fox says. Would you like to be Redival? No. What? No. Then she's pitiable. If I am allowed to give my jewels as I please, you must keep all the things that you and I have really loved. Let her have all that's big and costly and doesn't matter. You and the fox take what you please. I could bear no more for a while, so I laid my head down in her lap and wept. If only she would have laid her head in mine. Look up, Maya, she said presently. You'll break my heart, and I to be a bride. She could bear to say that. I could not bear to hear it. Orwell, she said very softly. We are the blood of the gods. We must not shame our lineage, Maya. It was you who taught me not to cry when I fell. I believe you are not afraid at all, said I, almost though almost, though I had not meant it to sound so, as if I were rebuking her for it. Only one thing, she said. There is a cold doubt, the horrid shadow in the, some corner of my soul. Supposing, supposing, how if there were no god of the mountain, or even no holy shadow brute, and those who are tied to the tree only die, day by day, from thirst and hunger, and wind and sun, or are eaten piecemeal by the crows in the catamountains. And it is this, so Maya, Maya. And now she did weep, but now she was a child again. What could I do but fondle and weep with her? But this is a great shame to write. There was now for me a kind of sweetness in our misery for the first time. This was what I had come to her in her prison to do. She recovered before I did. She raised her head, queen-like again, and said, But I'll not believe it. The priest has been with me. I never knew him before. He is not what the fox thinks. Do you know, sister, I have come to feel more and more that the fox hasn't the whole truth. Oh, he has much of it. It'd be dark as a dungeon within me but for his teaching. And yet, I can't say it properly, he calls the whole world a city. But what's the city built on? There's earth beneath. And outside the wall, doesn't all the food come from there as well as all the dangers? Things growing and rotting, strengthening and poisoning, things shining wet in one way, I don't know in which way, more like, yes, even more like the house of, yes, of Ungut, said I. 
Doesn't the whole land smell of her? Do you and I need to flatter gods any more? They're tearing us apart. Oh, how shall I bear it? And what worse can they do? Of course the fox is wrong. He knows nothing about her. He thought too well of the world. He thought there were no gods or else the fool that they were better than men. It never entered his mind. He was too good to believe that the gods are real and viler than the vilest men. Or else, said Psyche, they are real gods but don't really do these things. Or even, mightn't it be, that they do these things and the things are not what they seem to be. How, if I am indeed to wed a god? She made me, in a way, angry. I would have died for her, this at least I know is true, and yet the night before her death I could feel anger. She spoke so steadily and thoughtfully as if we had been disputing with the fox up behind the pear trees with hours and days still before us. The parting between her and me seemed to cost her so little. Oh, Psyche, I said almost in a shriek, what can these things be except the cowardly murder they seem? To take you, you whom they have worshipped and who never hurt so much as a toad, to make you food for a monster. You will say, I have said it many thousand times to myself, that if I saw in her any readiness to dwell on the better part of the priest's talk and to think she would be a god's bride more than a brute's prey, I ought to have fallen in with her and encouraged it. Had I not come to her to give her comfort, if I could, perhaps surely not to take it away, but I could not rule myself. Perhaps it was a sort of pride in me, a little like her own, not to blind our eyes, not to hide terrible things, or a bitter impulse in anguish itself to say, to keep on saying the worst. I see, said Psyche in a low voice. You think it devours the offering. I mostly think so myself. In any way, it means death. Orwell, you didn't think I was such a child as to not know that. How can I be the ransom for all gloam unless I die? And if I am to go to the god, of course it must be through death. That way, even what is strangest to the holy sayings might be true. To be eaten and to be married to the god might not be so different. We don't understand. There must be so much that neither the priest nor the fox knows. This time I bit my lip and said nothing. Unspeakable foulness seethed in my mind. Did she think the brute's lust better than its hunger? To be mated with a worm or a giant eft or a specter? And as for death, she said, why, Bardia there, I love Bardia, will look on it six times a day and whistle a tune as he goes to find it. We have made little use of the fox's teaching if we are to be scared by death. And you know, sister... He has sometimes let out that there were other Greek masters than those he follows himself, masters who have taught that death opens a door out of a little dark room that's all the life that we have known before into a great real place where the true sun shines and we shall meet. Oh, cruel, cruel, I wailed. Is it nothing to you that you leave me here alone? Psyche, did you ever love me at all? Love you? Why, Maya... What must I have ever ever had to love save you and our grandfather the fox? But I did not want her to bring even the fox in now. But sister, you will follow me soon. You don't think any mortal life seems a long thing to me tonight. How would it be better if I had lived? Suppose I should have been given to some king in the end, perhaps such another as our father. And there you can see again how little difference there is between dying and being married. To leave your home, to lose you, Maya, and the, and the fox, 
to lose one's maiden hen, to bear a child, these are all deaths. Indeed, indeed, Orla, I am not sure that this which I go to is not the best. This? Yes, what had I to look for if I lived? Is the world, this palace, this father, so much to lose? We have already had what would have been the best of our time. I must tell you something, Orwell, which I never told to anyone, not even you. I know now that this must be so even, betw even between the lovingest hearts, but her saying it that night was like stabbing me. <coughs> what is it, said I, looking down at her lap where our four hands were joined. This, she said, I have always, at least ever since I can remember, had a kind of longing for death. Ah, Psyche, said I, have I made you so little happy as that? No, 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 she said, you don't understand, not that kind of longing. It was when I was happiest that I longed most. It was on happy days when we were up there on the hills, the three of us, with the wind and the sunshine, where you couldn't see gloam or the palace. Do you remember the color and the smell and looking across at the gray mountain in the distance? And because it was so beautiful, it set me longing, always longing. Somewhere else there must be more of it. Everything seemed to be saying, Psyche, come. But I couldn't, not yet come, and I didn't know where I was to come to. It almost hurt me. I felt like a bird in a cage when the other birds of its kind are flying home. She kissed both of my hands, flung them free, and stood up. She had my father's trick of walking to and fro when she talked of something that moved her. And from now until the end, I felt, and this horribly, that I was losing her already, that the sacrifice tomorrow would only finish something that had already begun. She was. How long had she been? I do not know. Out of my reach in some place of her own. Since I write this book against the gods, it is just that I should put into it whatever can be said against myself. So let me set this down. As she spoke, I felt, amid all my love, a bitterness. Though the things she was saying gave her, that was plain enough, courage and comfort, I grudged her that courage and comfort. It was as if someone or something else had come between us. If this grudging is the sin for which the gods hate me, it is one I have committed. Orwell, she said, her eyes shining, I am going, you see, to the mountain. You remember how we used to look and long, and all the stories of my gold and amber house up there against the sky where we thought we should really never go? The greatest king of all was going to build it for me. If only you could believe it, sister. No, listen, do not let grief shut up your ears and harden your heart. Is it my heart that is hardened? Never to me, nor mine to you at all, but listen, are these things so evil as they seem? The gods will have mortal blood, but they say whose? If they had chosen any other in the land, there would have been only terror and cruel misery, but they chose me, and I am the one who has been made ready for it ever since I was a little child in your arms, Maya. The sweetest thing in all my life has been the longing to reach the mountain, to find the place where all the beauty came from. And that was the sweetest? Oh, cruel, cruel, your heart is not of iron, stone, rather, I sobbed. I don't think she even heard me. My country, the place where I ought to have been born. Do you think it all meant nothing, all the longing, the longing for home? For indeed it now feels not like going, but like going back. All my life the god of the mountain has been wooing me. Oh, look up once at least before the end and wish me joy. I'm going to my lover. Do you not see now? 
I only see that you have never loved me, said I. It may well be you are going to the gods. You are becoming cruel like them. Oh, Maya, cried Psyche, tears at last, coming to her eyes again. Maya, I, Barty, and knocked at the door. No time for better words, no time to unsay anything. Barty had knocked again, and louder. My oath on his sword, itself like a sword, was upon us. So the last spoiled embrace. Those are happy who have no such in their memory. For those who have, would they endure that I should write of it? Chapter 8 As soon as I was out in the gallery, my pains, which I had not perceived while I was with Psyche, came strongly back upon me. My grief, even, was deadened for a while, though my wits became very sharp and clear. I was determined to go with Psyche to the mountain and the holy tree, unless they bound me with chains. I even thought I might hide up there and set her free when the priest and the king and all the rest had turned to come home. Or, if there is a real shadow brute, I thought, and I cannot save her from it, I'll kill her with my own hand before I'll leave her to its clutches. To do all this, I knew I must eat and drink and rest. It was now nearly twilight, and I was still fasting. But first of all, I must find out when their murder, their offering, was to be. So I limped along the gallery, holding my side, and found a slave, the king's butler, who was able to tell me all. The procession, he said, was to leave the palace an hour before sunrise. Then I went to my own chamber and told my women to bring me food. I sat down to wait till it came. A great dullness and heaviness crept over me. I thought and felt nothing except that I was very cold. When the food came, I could not eat, though I tried to force myself to it. It was like putting cloth in my mouth. But I drank a little of the small beer, which was all they had to give me, and then, for my stomach rose against the beer, a great deal of water. I must have been almost sleeping before I finished, for I remember that I knew that I was in some great sorrow, but I could not recall what it was. They lifted me into the bed, and I shrank and cried out a little at their touch, and I fell at once into a dead stupidity of sleep, so that it seemed only a heartbeat later that they were waking me, two hours before sunrise, as I had bidden them. I woke screaming, for all my sore places had stiffened while I slept, and it was like hot pincers when I tried to move. One eye had closed up so that I might as well have been blind on that side. When they found out how much they hurt me in raising me from the bed, they begged me to lie still. Some said it was useless for me to rise, for the king had said that neither of the princesses should go to the offering. One asked if she should bring Bata to me. I told that one, with bitter words, to hold her tongue, and if I had the strength I would have hit her, which would have been ill done, for she was a good girl. I have always been fortunate with my women since I first had, had them to myself and out of the reach of Bata's meddling. They dressed me somehow and tried to make me eat. One even had a little wine for me, stolen, I guess, from the flag it intended for the king. They were all weeping. I was not. Dressing me, so sore I was, had taken a great time, so that I had hardly swallowed the wine before we heard the music beginning, the temple music, Ungut's music, the drums and the horns and the rattles and the castanets, all holy, deadly, dark, detestable, maddening noises. Quick, said I, it's time, they're going. Oh, I can't get up. Help me, girls. No, quicker. Drag me if need be. Take no heed to my groaning and screaming. They got me with great torture as far as the head of the staircase. I could now see down into the great hall between the pillar room and the bedchamber. It was ablaze with torches and very crowded. There were many guards. There were some girls of noble blood, veiled and chapleted like a bride's party. 
My father was there in very splendid robes, and there was a great bird-headed man. By the smell and the smoke there seemed to have been much killing already at the altar in the courtyard. Food for the gods must always be found somehow, even when the land starves. The great gateway was opened. <clears throat> I could see cold early dawn through it. Outside, priests and girls were singing. There must have been a great mob of the rabble, too, and the pauses you could hear, who could mistake it, their noise. No herd of other beasts gathered together has so ugly a voice as man. For a long time, I could not see Psyche at all. The gods are cleverer than we, and can always think of some vileness that never entered our heads to fear. When at last I saw her, that was the worst of all. She sat upright on an open litter between the king and the priest. The reason I had not known her was they had painted and gilded and bewigged her like a temple girl. I could not even tell whether she saw me or not. Her eyes, peering out of the heavy, lifeless mask which they had made of her face, were utterly strange. You couldn't even see in what direction she was looking. It is, in its way, admirable, this divine skill. It was not enough for the gods to kill her. They must make her father of the murderer. It was not enough to take her from me. They must take her from me three times over, tear out my heart three times. First her sentence, then her strange cold talk last night, and now this painted and gilded horror to poison my last sight of her. Ungit had taken the most beautiful thing that was ever born and made it into an ugly doll. They told me afterwards that I had tried to start going down the stairway and fell. They carried me to my bed. For many days after that I was sick, and most of them I do not remember. I was not in my right mind, and slept, they tell me, not at all. My ravings, what I can recall of them, were a ceaseless torture of tangled diversity, yet also of sameness. Everything changed into something else before you could understand it, yet the new thing always stabbed you in the very same place. One thread ran through all the delusions. Now mark again the cruelty of the gods, there is no escape from them into sleep or madness, for they can pursue you into them with dreams. Indeed, you are then most at their mercy. The nearest thing you, we have to a defense against them, but there is no real defense, is to be very wide awake and sober and hard at work, to hear no music, never look at earth or sky, and above all, to love no one. And now, finding me heart-shattered for Psyche's sake, they made it the common burden of all my fantasies that Psyche was my greatest enemy. All my sense of intolerable wrong was directed against her. It was she who hated me. It was on her that I wanted to be revenged. Sometimes she and Redival and I were all children together. Then Psyche and Redival would drive me away and put me out of the game and stand with her arms linked laughing at me. Sometimes I was beautiful and had a lover who looked absurdly a little like the poor eunuch Terran or a little like Bardia, I suppose because his was the last man's face almost I had seen before I fell ill. But on the very threshold of the bridal chamber, <coughs> or from the very bedside, Psyche, wigged and masked and no bigger than my forearm, would lead him away with one finger. And when they got to the door, they would turn round and mock and point at me. But these were the clearest visions. More often it was all confused and dim, Psyche throwing me down high precipices. Psyche, now very like the king, but still Psyche, 
kicking me and dragging me by the hair, Psyche with a torch or a sword or a whip, pursuing me over vast swamps and dark mountains, I running to save my life. But always wrong, hatred, mockery, and my determination to be avenged. The beginning of my recovery was when the visions ceased and left behind them only a settled sense of some great injury that Psyche had done me, though I could not gather my wits to think what it was. They say I lay for hours saying, cruel girl, cruel Psyche, her heart is of stone. And soon I was in my right mind again and knew how I loved her and that she had never willingly done me any wrong, though it hurt me somewhat that she should have found time at our last meeting of all, talking so little of me, to talk so much about the god of the mountain and the king and the fox and Redival and even Bardia. Soon after that, I was aware of a pleasant noise that had already been going on for a long time. What is it? I asked. I was astonished at the weak croak of my voice. What is what, child? said the voice of the fox, and I knew somehow he'd been sitting by my bed for many hours. The noise, grandfather, above our heads. That is the rain, dear, he said. Give thanks to Zeus for that and for your own recovery. And I, but you must sleep again. And drink this first. I saw the tears on his face as he gave me the cup. I had no broken bones. The bruises were gone and my other pains with them. But I was very weak. Weakness and work are two comforts the gods have not taken from us. I'll not write it, though it might move them to take these also away, except they must know it already. I was too weak now to feel much grief or anger. These days, before my strength came back, were almost happy. The fox was very loving and tender, and much weakened himself, and so were my women. I was loved more than I thought. And my sleeps were sweet now, and there was much rain, and between whiles the kind south wind blowing in at the window and sunshine. For a long time we never spoke of Psyche. We talked, when we talked at all, of common things. They had had much, they had much to tell me. The weather had changed the very day after my sickness began. The shenet was full again. The breaking of the drought had come too late to save the crops for the most part. One or two fields put up a little, but garden stuff was growing. Above all, the grass was reviving wonderfully. We should save far more of the cattle than we hoped, and the fever was clean gone. My own sickness had been of another kind. The birds were coming back to gloom, so that every woman whose husband could shoot a bow or set a snare might have soon have something in the pot. These things I heard of from the women as well as from the fox. When we were alone, he told me of other news. My father was now, while it lasted, the darling of his people. It seemed this was how we first came round to the matter nearest our hearts. He had been much pitied and praised at the great offering. Up there, at the holy tree, he had wailed and wept and torn his robes and embraced Psyche countless times. He had never done it before, but said again and again that he could, would not hold, withhold his heart's dearest when the good of the people called for her death. The whole crowd was in tears, as the fox had been told. He himself, as a slave and an alien, had not been there. Did you know, grandfather, said I, that the king was such a mountebank? We were talking in Greek, of course. Not wholly that, child, said the fox. He believed it while he did it. His tears are no falser or truer than Redival's. Then he went on to tell me of the great news from Fars. A fool in the crowd had said the king of Fars had thirteen sons. 
The truth is that he had begotten eight, whereof one had died in childhood. The eldest was simple and could never rule, and the king, some said their laws allowed him, had named Argan the third as his successor. And now, it seemed, his second son, Trunia, taking it ill to be put out of the succession, and doubtless fomenting some other discontents such are, as are never far to seek in any land, had risen in rebellion with a strong following to recover what he called his right. The upshot was that all Fars was likely to be busy with civil war for a twelfth month at least, and both parties were already as soft as butter towards Glome, so that we were safe from any threat in that quarter. A few days later, when the fox was with me, often he could not be, for the king needed him, I said, Grandfather, do you still think that Ungit is only the lives of poets and priests? Why not, child? If she were indeed a goddess, what more could have followed my poor sister's death than has followed it? All the dangers and plagues that hung over us have been scattered. Why, the wind must have changed the very day after they had... I found now that I could not give it a name. The grief was coming back with my strength. So was the fox's. Curse chance, curse chance, he muttered, his face all screwed up, partly in anger and partly to keep back his tears. Greek men cry easily as women. It is these chances that nourish the beliefs of barbarians. How often, Grandfather, have you told me there's no such thing as chance? You're right. It was an old trick of the tongue. I meant that all these things had no more to do with that murder than with anything else. They and it are all part of the same web, which is called nature or the whole. That southwest wind came over a thousand miles of sea and land. The weather of the whole world would have had to be different for the beginning if that wind was not to blow. It's all one web. You can't pick threads out nor put them in. And so, said I, raising myself on my elbow, she died to no purpose. If the king had waited a few days later, we could have saved her, for all would have begun to go well of itself. And this you call comfort? Not this. Their evil doing was vain and ignorant, as all evil deeds are. This is our comfort, that the evil was theirs, not hers. They say that there was not a tear in her eye, nor did as so much as her hand shake when they put her to the tree. Not even when they turned away and left her did she cry out. She died full of all things that are really good, courage and patience and, and I, I, oh, psyche, oh, my little one. Then his love got the better of his philosophy, and he pulled his mantle over his head, and at last, still weeping, left me. Next day, he said, I saw, you saw yesterday, daughter, how little progress I have made. I began to philosophize too late. You are younger and can go further. To love and to lose what we love are equally things appointed for our nature, for we cannot bear the second well. If we cannot bear the second well, that evil is ours. It did not befall Psyche. If we look at it with reason's eye and not with our passions, what good that life offers did she not win? Chastity, temperance, prudence, meekness, clemency, valor, and though fame is froth, yet if we should all reckon it at all, a name that stands with Iphigenia's and Antigone's. Of course, he had long since told me those stories, so often that I had them by heart, mostly in the very words of the poets. <clears throat> Nevertheless, I asked him to tell them to me again, chiefly for his sake, for I, I was now old enough to know that a man, above all a Greek man, could find comfort in words coming out of his own mouth. But I was glad to hear them, too. These were peaceful, familiar things, 
and would keep at bay the great desolation which now, with my returning health, was beginning to mix itself in every thought. Next day, being then for the first time risen, I said to him, Grandfather, I have missed being Iphigenia. I can be Antigone. Antigone, how, child? She gave her brother burial. I, too. There may be something left. Even the brute would not eat bones and all. I must go up to the tree. I will bring it, them, back if I can, and burn them rightly. Or if there's too much, I'll bury it up there. It would be pious, said the fox. It would accord with custom, if not with nature. If you can. It's late in the year now for going up the mountain. That's why it must be done speedily. I think it will be about five and twenty days before the earliest snow. If you can, child, you've been very sick. It's all I can do, said I. Chapter 9 I was soon able to go about the house and in the gardens again. I did it in some stealth, for the fox told the king I was still sick. Otherwise, he would have had me off to the pillar room to work for him. He often asked, where's that girl got to? Does she mean to slug a bed for the rest of her life? I'll not feed drones in my hive forever. The loss of Psyche had not at all softened him to Redival and me, rather the opposite. To hear him talk, said the fox, you'd think no father ever, lo ever loved a child better than he, Psyche. The gods had taken his darling and left him the dross, the young whore, that was Redival, and the hobgoblin, which was I. But I could guess it all without the fox's reports to help me. For my own part, I was busy, busily thinking out how I could make my journey to the tree on the mountain and gather whatever might remain of Psyche. I had talked lightly enough of doing this and was determined that I would do it, but the difficulties were very great. I had never been taught to ride any beast, so I must go on foot. I knew it would take a man who knew the way about six hours to go from the palace <coughs> to the tree. I, a woman, and one who had to find her way, must allow myself eight at the least, and two more for the work I went to do, and say six for the journey home. There were sixteen hours in all. It could not be done in one stitch. I must reckon to lie out a night on the mountain, and must take food, water I should find, and warm clothing. It could not be done till I recovered my full strength. And in truth, as I now see, I had the wish to put off my journey as long as I could, not for any peril or labor it might cost, but because I could see nothing in the whole world for me to do once it was accomplished. As long as this act lay before me, there was, as it were, some barrier between me and the dead desert which the rest of my life must be. Once I had gathered Psyche's bones, then, it seemed, all that concerned her would be over and done with. Already, even with the great act still ahead, there was flowing in upon me from the barren years beyond it a dejection such as I had never conceived. It was not at all like the agonies I had endured before and have endured since. I did not weep nor wring my hands. I was like water put into a bottle and left in a cellar, utterly motionless, never to be drunk, poured out, spilled, or shaken. The days were endless. The very shadows seemed nailed to the ground as if the sun no longer moved. One day, when this deadness was at its worst, I came into the house by the little door that leads into the narrow passage between the guards' quarters and the dairy. I sat down on the threshold, less weary of body, for the gods, not out of mercy, have made me strong. And unable to find a reason for going a step further in any direction or for doing anything at all, a fat fly was crawling up the doorpost. I remember thinking that its sluggish crawling, seemingly without aim, was like my life or even the life of the whole world. 
Lady, said a voice behind me. I looked up. It was Bardia. Lady, he said, I'll make free with you. I've known sorrow, too. I've been as you are now. I have sat and felt the hours drawn out to the length of years. What cured me was the wars. I don't think there's any other cure. But I can't go to the wars, Bardia, said I. You can, almost, he said. When you fought me outside the prince, other princesses' doors, peace be upon her, the blessed, I told you that you had a good eye and a good reach. You thought I was saying it to cheer you. Well, so perhaps I was, but it was true, too. There's no one in the quarters, and, and there are blunt swords. Come in, and let me give you a lesson. No, I said dully, I don't want to. What would be the use? Use? Try it and see. No one could be sad while they're using wrist and hand and eye and every muscle of their body. That's truth, lady, whether you believe it or not. As well, it would be a hundred shames not to train anyone who is such a gift for the sport as you look like having. No, said I, leave me alone. Unless we can use sharps and you would kill me. That's woman's talk, by your favor. You'd never say that again once you've seen it done. Come, I'll not leave off till you do. A big, kindly man, some years older than herself, can usually persuade even a sad and sullen girl. In the end, I rose and went in with him. That shield's too heavy, he said. Here's the one for you. Slip it on thus, and understand from the outset, your shield is a weapon, not a wall. You're fighting with it every bit as, bit as much as your sword. Watch me now. You see the way I twist my shield, make it flicker like a butterfly. There'll be arrows, spears, and sword points flying off it in every direction if we were in hot engagement. Now, here's your sword. No, not like that. You want to grip it firm, but light. It's not a wild animal that's trying to run away from you. That's better. Now your left foot forward. And don't look at my face. Look at my sword. It isn't my face is going to fight you. And now, I'll show you a few guards. He kept me at it for a full half hour. It was the hardest work I'd ever done, and while it lasted, one could think of nothing else. I said not long before that work and weakness are comforters, but sweat is the kindest creature of the three, far better than philosophy as a cure for ill thoughts. That's enough, said Bardia. You shape very well. I'm sure now I can make a swordsman of you. You'll come again tomorrow, but your dress hampers you. It would be better if you'd wear something that came only to your knee. I was in such a heat that I went across the passage into the dairy and drank a bowl of milk. It was the first food or drink that I'd really relished ever since the bad times began. While I was in there, one of the other soldiers, I suppose he'd had a sight of what we were doing, came into the passage and said something to Bardia. Bardia replied, I couldn't hear what. Then he spoke louder. My, yes, it's a pity about her face. But she's a brave girl and honest. If a man was blind and she wasn't the king's daughter, she'd make him a good wife. And that's the nearest thing to a love speech that was ever made me. I had my lesson with Barty every day after that, and I soon knew, I knew soon that he had been a good doctor to me. My grief remained, but the numbness was gone, and time moved at its right pace again. Soon I told Bardia how I wished to go to the Grey Mountain and why. That's very well thought of, lady, he said. I'm ashamed I've not done it myself. We all owe the blessed princess that much at least. But there's no need for you to go. I'll go for you. I said I would go. Then you must go with me, he said. You'd never find the place by yourself. And you might meet a bear or wolves or a mountainy man, an outlaw. That'd be worse. Can you ride a horse, lady? No, I've never been taught. He wrinkled up his brow, thinking, One horse will do, he said, I, I in the saddle and you behind me. 
and it won't take six hours getting up. There's a shorter way. But the work we have to do might take long enough. We'll need to sleep at night on the mountain. Will the king let you be absent so long, Bardia? He chuckled. Oh, I'll spin the king a story easily enough. He isn't with us as he is with you, lady. For all his hard words, he's no bad master to soldiers, shepherds, huntsmen, and the like. He understands them, and they him. You see him at his worst with women and priests and politic men. The truth is, he's half afraid of them. This was very strange to me. <laughs> Six days after that, I and Bardia set out at the milking time of the morning, the day being so cloudy that it was almost as dark as full night. No one in the palace knew of our going except the fox and my own women. I had on a plain black cloak with a hood and a veil over my face. Under the mantle I wore the short smock that I used for my fencing bouts, with a man's belt and a sword, this time a sharp one at my side. Most likely we'll meet nothing worse than a wild cat or a fox, Bardia <coughs> said. But no one, man or maid, ought to go weaponless up the hills. I sat with both my legs on one <coughs> side of the horse and a hand on Bardia's girdle. With the other I held on my knees and held on my knees an urn. It was all silent in the city, and but for the clatter of our own beast's hooves. So here and there you could see a light in a window. A sharp rain came on us from behind our backs as we went down from the city to the ford of the Shennet, but it ceased as we were crossing the water and the clouds began to break. There was still no sign of dawn ahead, for it was in that direction <coughs> the foul weather was packing off. We passed the house of Ungut on our right. Its fashion is thus, great ancient stones, twice the height of a man and four times the thickness of a man, sat upright in an egg-shaped ring. These are very ancient, and no one knows who set them up or brought them into that place, or how. In between the stones, it is filled up with brick to make the wall complete. The roof is thatched with rushes, and not level, but somewhat domed, so that the whole thing is a roundish hump, most like a huge slug lying on a field. This is a holy shape, but the priests say it resembles, or, in a mystery, that it really is, the egg from which the whole world was hatched, or the womb in which the whole world once lay. Every spring the priest is shut into it and fights, or makes believe to fight, his way through to the western door, and this means that the new year is born. There was smoke going up from it as we passed, for the fire before Ungut is always alight. I found my mood changed as soon as we had left Ungut behind, partly because we were now going into country I had never known, and partly because I felt as if the air were sweeter as we got away from all that holiness. The mountain, now bigger ahead of us, still shut out the brightening of the day, and when we looked back and saw beyond the city those hills where Psyche and I and the fox used to wander, I perceived that it was already morning there, and further off still the clouds of the western sky were beginning to turn pale rose. We were going up and down little hills, but always more up than down, on a good enough road, with grasslands on each side of us. There were dark woods on our left, and presently the road bent towards them. But here Bardia left the road and took to the grass. That's the holy road, he said, pointing to the woods. That's the way they took the blessed peace be upon her. Our way will be steeper and shorter. We now went for a long time over grass, gently but steadily upward, making for a ridge so high and so near that the true mountain was quite out of sight. When we topped it and stood for a while to let the horse breathe, everything was changed and my struggle began. We had come into the sunlight now, too bright to look into, and warm, I threw back my cloak. Heavy dew made the grass jewel bright. 
the mountain, far greater yet, also far further off than I expected, seen with the sun hanging a hand's breadth above its topmost crags, did not look like a solid thing. Between us and it was a vast tumble of valley and hill, woods and cliffs and more little lakes than I could count. To left and right and behind us the whole colored world with all of its hills was heaped up and up to the sky with far away a gleam of what we call the sea, though it is not to be compared with the great sea of the Greeks. There was a lark singing, and for that, but for that huge and ancient stillness. And my struggle was this. You may well believe that I had set out, set out sad enough. I came on a sad errand. Now, flung at me, like frolic or insolence, there came as if it were a voice. No words, but if you made it into words, it would be, why should your heart not dance? It's the pity, the measure of my folly that my heart almost answered, why not? I had to tell myself over, like a lesson, the infinite reasons it had not to dance, my heart to dance, mine whose love was taken from me, I, the ugly princess who must never look for another love, the drudge of the king, the jailer of hateful Redville, perhaps to be murdered or turned out as a beggar when my father died, for who knew what Gloam would do then? And yet it was a lesson I could hardly keep in my mind. The sight of the huge world put mad ideas into me, as if I could wander away, wander forever, see strange and beautiful things, one after the other to the world's end the freshness and wetness all about me. I had seen nothing but drought and withered things for many months before my sickness made me feel that I had misjudged the world. It seemed kind and laughing, as if its heart also danced. Even my ugliness I could not quite believe in. Who can feel ugly when the heart meets delight? It is as if, somewhere inside, within the hideous face and bony limbs, one is soft, fresh, lissome, and desirable. We had stood on the ridge only for a short time, but for hours later, while we went up and down, winding among great hills, often dismounting and leading the horse, sometimes on dangerous edges, the struggle went on. Was I not right to struggle against this fool-happy mood? Mere seemliness, if nothing else, called for it. I would not go laughing to Psyche's burial. If I did, how should I ever again believe that I had loved her? Reason called for it. I knew the world too well to believe this sudden smiling. What woman can have patience with the man who can yet be can be yet again deceived by his doxy's fawning after she he has thrice been proved her false? I should be just like such a man if a mere burst of fair weather and fresh grass after a long drought and health after sickness could make me friends again with this God-haunted, plague-breeding, decaying, tyrannous world. I had seen I was not a fool. I did know, not know then, however, as I do now, the strongest reason for distrust. The gods never send us this invitation to delight so readily or so strongly as when they're preparing some new agony. We are their bubbles. They blow us big before they prick us. But I held my own without that knowledge. I ruled myself. Did they think I was nothing but a pipe to be played on at their moments as their moments fancy chose? The struggle ended as we topped the last rise before the real mountain. We were so high now that, though the sun was very strong, the wind blew bitterly cold. At our feet, between us and the mountain, lay a cursed black valley, dark moss, dark peat bogs, 
shingle, great boulders, and screes of stone sprawling down into it from the mountain, as if the mountain had sores, and these were the stony issue from them. The great mass of it rose up. We tilted our heads back to look at it, into huge nobbles of stone against the sky like an old giant's back teeth. The face itself, the face it showed us, was really no steeper than a roof, except for certain frightful cliffs on our left, but it looked as if it went up like a wall. It, too, was now black. Here the gods ceased trying to make me glad. There was nothing here that even the merriest heart could dance for. Bardia pointed ahead to our right. There the mountain fell away into a, in a smooth sweep to a saddle somewhat lower than the ground we stood on, but still with nothing behind it but the sky. Against the sky, on the saddle, stood a single leafless tree. We went down into the black valley on our own feet, leading the horse, for the going was bad, and the stone slipped away from under us until, at the lowest place, we joined the sacred road. It came into the valley through the northern end, away to our left. We were so near now that we did not mount again. A few loops of the road led us up to the saddle and, once more, into the biting wind. I was afraid, now that we were almost at the tree, I can hardly say of what, but I know that to find bones, or even a body, would have set my fear at rest. I believe I had a senseless child's fear that she might be neither living nor dead. And now we were there, the iron girdle and the chain that went from it about the gaunt trunk, there was no bark on the tree, hung there and made a dull noise from time to time as they moved in the wind. There were no bones, no rags of clothing, no marks of blood, nor anything else. How do you read these signs, Bardia, said I. The gods taken her, he said, rather pale and speaking low. He was a God-fearing man. No natural beast could have licked his plate so clean. There'd be bones. A beast, any but the holy shadow brood itself, couldn't have got the whole body out of the irons, and it would have left the jewels. A man now, but a man wouldn't have, couldn't have freed her unless he had tools with him. I had not thought of our journeys being so vain, nothing to do, nothing to gather. The emptiness of my life is, was to begin at once. We could search about a bit, I said foolishly, for I had no hope of finding anything. Yes, yes, lady, we can search about, said Bardia. I knew it was only his kindness that spoke. And so we did, working round in circles, he one way and I the other, with our eyes on the ground, very cold, one cloak, one's cloak flapping till leg and cheek smarted with the blows of it. Bardio was ahead of me now, eastward and further across the saddle when he called out. I had to thrust back the hair that was whipping about my face before I could see him. I rushed to him, half flying, for the west wind made a sail of my cloak. He showed me what he had found, a ruby. I never saw her wear such a stone, said I. She did, though, lady, on her last journey. They had put her their own holy gear upon her. The straps of the sandals were red with rubies. Oh, Bardia, then somebody, something, carried her thus far. Or, maybe, carried only the sandals, a jackdaw do it. We must go on, further on this line. <coughs> Carefully, lady, if we must, I'll do it. You best stay behind. Why, what's to fear? And anyway, I'll not stay behind. I don't know that anyone's been over the saddle at the offering. Even the priests came no further than the tree. We are very near the bad part of the mountain. I mean the holy part. Beyond the tree, it's all God's country, they say. Then it is you must stay behind, Barty. They can't do worse to me than they've done already. I'll go where you go, lady, but let's talk less of them, or not at all. 
and first I must go back and get the horse. He went back, and for a moment, out of sight, I stood alone on the edge of the perilous land, to where he had tied the horse to a little stunted brush. Then he rejoined me, leading it, very grave, and we went forward. Carefully, he said again, we may find we're on the top of a cliff any moment, and indeed it looked for the next few paces as if we were walking straight into the empty sky. Then suddenly we found we were on the brow of a steep slope, and at the same moment the sun, which had been overcast ever since we went down into the black valley, leaped out. It was like looking down into a new world. At our feet, cradled amid a vast confusion of mountains, lay a small valley bright as a gem, but opening southward on our right. Through that opening, there was a glimpse of warm, blue lands, hills and forests far below us. The valley itself was like a cleft in the mountain's southern chin. High though it was, the year seemed to have been kinder in it than down in gloom. I never saw greener turf. There was gorse and bloom and wild vines and many groves of flourishing trees and, and great plenty of bright water pools, streams, and little cataracts. And when, after casting about a little to find where the slope would be easiest for the horse, we began descending. The air came up to us warmer and sweeter every minute. We were out of the wind now and could hear ourselves speak. Soon we could hear the very chattering of the streams and the sound of bees. This may very well this may well be the secret valley of the gods, said Bardia, his voice hushed. It's secret enough, said I. Now we are at the bottom, and so warm I had half a mind to dip my hands and face in the swift amber water of the stream, which still divided us from the main of the valley. I had already lifted my hand to put aside my veil when I heard two voices cry out, one Bardia's. I looked. A quivering shock of feeling that has no name, but its nearest terror, stabbed through me from head to foot. There, not six feet away, on the far side of the river, stood Psyche. The End of the reading. Okay. Kill a princess, don't stay dead. So, what do we... Uh, fewer uh, factoids this week. Um, uh, reference to Antigone and Iphigenia. Uh, for those of you who have some background in classics, you know already. Iphigenia was Agamemnon's daughter, and when the fleet was trying to sail to Troy, uh, the gods being insulted by something, um, something Agamemnon did, um, wasn't giving them winds to sail, and expected him to sacrifice his daughter Iphigenia, uh, and he does so. Uh, it tracks sort of like, it's interesting that it was, you know, 1200 B.C., if it really happened, and it probably did. Uh, same, almost precisely same time frame that that Jephthah, judge of Israel, sacrificed his daughter um, at the end of a battle, not before, uh, having promised a human sacrifice. Uh, so it's, it's sort of a, uh, not a trope or a, or a myth, it seems like this was something that was going around at the time, a trend. Uh, Antigone uh, was, if you read Oedipus, uh, Tyrannus, or uh, the other plays, uh, Oedipus, of course, ends up 
fated to kill his father and marry his mother. He does so. His daughter, by his mother, um, is uh, Antigone. And when he finds out that he's married his mother, he stabs his own eyes out with her brooches. She's killed herself. Stabs his eyes out with her hairpins or whatever. And uh, Antigone then is a dutiful daughter who helps her father through the rest of his life, sort of taking him along, guiding him. And then she, as is referenced in the book here, uh, her brother, Polynice or something like that, uh, uh, she attends to her brother's burial uh, to give him a good burial. So that's, uh, um, she's sort of, they're both uh, storied women whose tragic situation they, they sort of faithfully go through. Kind of like Jephthah's daughter says, you got to do it. other references, uh, a lot of good quotes in this section. Um, I was looking for, oh, there's that one reference, uh, Trom the king says it's basically good that one should die for the many. It's almost a quote from John uh, chapter 11 where the high priest prophesies that one should die for the many, speaking of Christ. Um, and, of course, people who lo- want to make this an allegory uh, start, you know, lighting their hair on fire and, and the like. Uh, but, like so much of antiquity or so much of the myths, uh, portions of them track with, you might say, almost so, so closely to the, the thing prophesied in the scriptures, that uh, you think it must have meant it, but the rest of the story doesn't. You know, the re- nothing. It, it's it's again. This is a another incident that the author, unknowing that uh, this is three hundred BC ish, um, unknowing is um, um, things are happening that are. Uh, part of the whole world's anticipation without it knowing it. Because even the high priest, when he says that, he did not know because he was the high priest that he could prophesy, and he had prophesied. Uh, so that things said in an ancient country somewhere else, referring to a sacrifice of a human being for to stop the plague and the drought, was, um, you might say, a, a, a un connected prophecy to what was going to happen 300 years later. So it's, it's, it's again, it's a real story and how real things that had nothing to do story-wise with the Christ might be God's voice in the situation. But that's as close as it can get with the, given the rest of the story, as you will be able to see, given the rest of the story. Um, so, with those couple of remarks about uh, um, what are the things that stood out to you? Uh, every time I read this, I'm always so struck by how, um, how masculine oral makes herself out to be. Um, 
she, I don't know, she just responds to things in a very masculine way. Like when, um, yeah. Um, but, but people like Bardia still see her as, you know, the woman that she is. And, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of instances where, you know, like, when, like, she tries to, uh, she gets the fight sword. Fight And, yeah, she tries to fight him, and she thinks she's being all tough. And, and he, but it's, like, nothing for him to actually take her down. But, anyway, I, she always has such a, uh, a masculine way of, of just carrying herself. Um, mm. in her world. Um, yeah. Something that always strikes me about Orwell is that she's writing this towards the end of her life, correct? Yeah. And at the tone that she's writing it in, she's still incredibly bitter. Mm -hmm. She has no... It's like she's writing this whole story and here we are getting something from it and she she's not getting any of it. She does. She does admit that the thing tonight. She does admit. Um, oh, that she shouldn't have been so. On the journey, when she's out in the <coughs> world, she's starting to feel the joy of of life. But she was thinking that she shouldn't be feeling right. that, and she's. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is part of the plot of the gods to guilty. blow yeah. the bubble up big and then and prick then, it. Yeah. And she still felt that way even. But but here, whatever chapter, chapter seven. Um, as since I write this book against the gods, it is just that I should put into it whatever can be said against myself. So let me set this down. As she spoke, I felt, amid all my love, a bitterness. Though the things she was saying gave her, well, that was plain enough, courage and comfort, I grudged her that courage and comfort. It was as if someone or something else had come in between us. If this grudging is the sin for which the gods hate me, it is one I have committed." So she, yeah. she, she has some self-knowledge, um, and you, you probably spot it yourself in that whole scene with her visiting Psyche in the prison room. Yeah. Uh, how she's bothered by everything, every, all the way it's going. Her head should be in my lap, not my, my head in hers, you know. Um, it's, she should be sad about losing me. And and not talking about the king and the fox and, yeah. and even calling the fox one of her friends along with Orwell, yeah. you know. Just all the Just little bare, friends. bare insults that very, very slight that um, uh, are representing something, which I think, I don't know if you saw it run, running up to it when the king goes off in his usual unfeeling way about she's my daughter, I'm the one who's being victimized here, I'm the one that is having the loss and as Allison said she's more like her dad Orwell's more like her dad temperamentally as sort of a guyness to her with sort of anger uh, wanting to kill people that don't do it her way um, yeah, uh, kind of like Forcing cruelty when she feels like it's necessary, like she says to Redival, like if I ever become the like the I will hang you by your thumbs. House, I'll hang you by your thumbs. And or she would hit that one girl that was a good serving girl, but it, her desire was mm -hmm. to to hit the serving girl. Um, uh, so she's in, in actuality, if we've been spotting Trom's, um, no, what she call him a mountebank. Uh, okay, such a vile human being, and in some ways, 
she is going through internally the feelings that that are the kind of selfish why not why is it what am I chopped liver why is it not about me why why can't psyche love me and um, she's the she has become and then her dreams during her sickness are all turning psyche into the villainous and she has to avenge herself against psyche it's a very uh, I thought very nicely done um, um, yeah, and you, and you, you know you kind of like Orwell as a character, but boy, what a mess. Um. I think she's just so deprived of love. Like, a sort of intimate love that can only come from a family. Her father's not loving to her, he's abusive. And Psyche, as she mentioned, Oral mentions that there's this moment where Psyche sort of is more mature. And it's like, yeah. Right, and so, but Oral's done so much and poured so much love into this one thing that she absolutely adores. And she doesn't feel that same return of love that she's so hungry for. Right, and it's like when, when she, this week when she's talking about her love for death or her longing for death, mm -hmm. and she's looking forward to it like for marriage, mm -hmm. you know, and she's going to her lover, she may, uses that terminology, and Orwell's only losing in this situation as far as her measure, and Psyche is choosing a grim end by anybody's description, um, for the sake of this love, this longing. And um, that just is inexplicable. We talked a little bit about it last week when he's describing that letter to Kilby about what he meant by these characters and what he, what, why there was no allegory here. Um, and then he goes on to talk about how Christianity does that in a family, that one person sees the mountain beyond or the, 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 the greater and far greater thing than family, and the, the family feels grossly offended that this, you can't love us if you've loved something greater. You know, that's the... Mm -hmm. um, Another thing that Oral's really mad about is that uh, Psyche can't share in her misery. Um, she, you know, basically came there just to for for them to um, you know cry and hug each other the whole time, and that's really that's really all that Oral wanted out of it. And yeah, and she can't stand. Yeah, she wants to be vulnerable with her, um, uh, but but Psyche is you know choosing the the higher road. It may it might be something what you said earlier about her manliness. So she said at one point last week that she wanted to be a man so that he could woo her you know, she could bear him his child or something. Mm -hmm. There is this desire for her to be the husband of her so that, and that, that it's that as the ugly one, as the older one, as the stronger one, that was how she felt her role was. And uh, so it, 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 it's, uh, it's uh, she's got some bent parts. Do you think that Lewis can ordinarily write female characters well? I do. So, um, 
it, is he drawing on his own uh, knowledge? His own, his own knowledge as a man in order to write that. Well, he has to. I mean, did, no, let's check with the women. We got some women here. Um, ah, no, let's not ask him. Does 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 Lewis in his portrayal? We got three. Well, we have a number of women. We have Redival, Orwell, Psyche, Bata. Uh, so far, um, does he seem to grip women, the different kinds of women? Yep, I would say so. I got quite I wide. Think so. yeah. Yeah. yeah, they're all they're all so different, and I, I was I was kind of thinking the same thing. I I was like Orwell, just doesn't think like a woman does. Um, she's a very, I mean. Her situation is a very strained one, you know, having no mother and having an abusive father and being the oldest and all that stuff, and also being in just kind of a barbaric <laughs> land that's a little bit uh, different. But, but yeah, Psyche is very is very feminine. She's like the green lady mm-hmm. in Carolandra, and um, and then Redville. Um, like I've, I've seen, you knew girls like that in high I've school. I've seen yeah. girls like that before in ba- uh, Bata, um, just like yeah, gossipy and malicious. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, but I think that that Orwell's situation um, is is structured to be unique. It's not an accident of his right, writing yeah. of I women. I think there are women like Orwell. But but th- that yeah. sort of misalignment because of her ugliness and her circumstance. Um, she had nothing to, but even Psyche admits that what if she had lived, she would have been married off to some king who would be possibly like her father, and it would be another death. It would be just a different way of dying, you know. Um, that's what that's what everybody hoped for. Even the prettiest of women had that to look forward to. So um, I, I think that we did, he, he places some things in Orwell that no woman really wants to be placed in her situation to identify with, but uh, we find ourselves going, you know, this is a real way of thinking. This is how that person really would think. Um, yeah. And the only the only thing that the women in this room have in common with Orwell is that they're also women. So there's a, a little bit of a contrast. Like, You're saying we're all better looking than Orwell? No, I'm well, saying thank God the, only, the only common thing we have in, in common with very good Every situation, every every circumstance that she is in is unlike any woman in this room. Yeah. Uh, as a have her experience, basically. yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, firstborn daughter of a king, uh, hated. Uh, you know, it, it's just it's not a very relatable position. Yeah. And she's ugly. But there are women <laughs> like this. Oh no, you're just yeah, like I can I can think of uh, like. Uh-huh. Politicians, who I can imagine. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. Are a lot like me. More to my point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. quick, quick question, because I missed it. What was the method of execution? For- they, they, they chained her to a tree and left her for the shadow brute, oh, right, right. Uh, the yeah. god of the Grey Mountains. Um, even though she does seem, you know, very masculine and weird. I think it's I think it's so important to take into account what Barney has said about her. That even though you know it's a pity about her face, um, she would probably make a really good wife. Mm-hmm. Um, if a man was blind. Yeah. <laughs> right. But it's like that's a 
a big credit to her. Um, it, you know, if it's hard for us to see her more womanly qualities, at least somebody kind of noble sees, uh, sees something of mm. feminine worth in her. Um, uh, and she says that's the, now she's writing that's a memoir, um, uh, <laughs> and she says that's the closest thing to a love speech she ever got in her life, you know, is a offhand remark of calling her a butterface, you know, um. Okay, uh, we've got a few uh, great remarks here that we might want to pursue a little bit. Soldiers' hands are gentler than they you, than you expect. When her dad is that a good? When her dad carries her. Yeah. Um, what's 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 the uh, what's the subtext of that? Why would soldiers' hands be gentler? Because they know. In the context of her being wounded. It, it it recalls um, saving a comrade or something, attending to uh, soldiers that have been injured. I don't know. A soldier's hands can that. hurt, mm -hmm. but so if they can also be gentle. Well, it takes a to be gentle. You have to have. You can be gentle to a greater degree the stronger you become, yes. because that that you you know what you have to restrain to do this task. If you're just, you could be, you would be called gentle if you were just a Casper milk toast who could barely lift a, you know, a, a, a piece of paper. But that's just because you can't pick up a piece of paper, so you can't, of course, you can't hurt somebody. But these are people that hurt people for a living, and to, to it's it's surprising to find the gentleness in the strong. But that's really the only place that it really be truly evident. Mm -hmm. uh, also, uh, uh, they can handle, you know, lifting a body without. Struggling, you know, like a really weak person would. <laughs> you struggle with that, Allison? Yes. Lifting your son. <laughs> yes. Um, it's already getting difficult. Remember when the king asked the fox when they're discussing what would you do? What would you do in this situation? And the fox has a bunch of ideas. This is what I'll do. This is how I'll. I'll, I'll lie about this. We'll we'll poison somebody. We'll yeah. set up a rebellion. We'll do okay, so forth and so on. What is, and then if we lose, we at least die without the blood of innocence on our hands. You know, we. Um, I try to get the day changed. Is that what? You're yeah, that that section. Yeah. And what's what's that? The assumptions that the, the fox has about the world. Every, you begin to see everything is at when everything that matters to him is at stake. There are no gods to concern yourself with offending. Mm -hmm. You know that this all serves. Um, we serve ourselves in our own interests, and we do it heroically. What more could you ask yeah. of a man in this world? The gods are are secondary to our service to ourselves because he's sort of eliminated the gods. Yeah, I, I noticed that section too, and I also noticed the comment um, that uh, the grief was coming back with my strength, so was the fox's curse, curse, chance. Um, and he's he um, screws up his face. Partly in anger, to par but partly to keep back his tears. Greek men cry easily as women. This is that contrast of 
we're going to manipulate the circumstance to get what we want. So there's so much passion, and then when you lose it, you you cry uh, for that. I don't know. It just struck me as those were kind of related. The well, you have the uh, sort of the opposite with the king, the fox, and Orwell are willing to to serve themselves, are willing to deny the gods and operate on any any program. The king then is willing to submit to the gods. He's willing to go through with the sacrifice because that serves his... Yeah. In, in both cases, not serving or serving, both are, 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 are... One is trying to cover it up with heroism and one's trying to cover it up with obedience to the gods. What else can I do? Um, but in all cases, it's whether or not whose ox is being gored, you know. Um, um, how about the phrase, it is not in nature for the ugly to love the pretty, says the king. It's the, he can't believe that Orwell loves his sister because how, is this a truth that he stumbles upon out of sheer, uh, not perception, but he says it's not in nature that a stepsister who's ugly and older will love the pretty one. Now, we're, we're, we're ourselves, we're questioning the love of Orwell, right? Where is it really? Is it resting in this? Yeah. Um, and it, it's because of the, obviously, the, um, not jealousy, the envy of, I wish I had all that. I wish I was what she was. What she Almost is. like if I can't have it, then I'll worship it. Yeah. And, and that worship should have some recompense. Uh, oh, well, her, Earl, Earl's uh, jealousy turns to envy. Well, we never, well, we, that's later. But it's it's mostly jealousy, right? Because she feels that she's she has possession of psyche. Right. Of her, the relationship itself. If she's losing it, she's being sued against Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, there's, a, uh, there's a phrase that when she first comes into the prison and she says, yeah, briefly glances and has this permanent vision, psyche, a bed, and a lamp. Mm -hmm. Okay, which, it didn't tell you anything there, but that's an impression that forever in her mind plays in the story later. So... Um, um, oh, the the term Maya is a as a one of the Pleiades um, and a, a Greek term for midwife. Um, and sometimes older women. Um, how about the? Um, You have a strong, uh, with, with, when Psyche is talking to Orwell, it's almost tracking directly along Lewis's own sensuous longing for a glimpse of what he had felt since he was a child of certain things. If I remind you from this autobiography where he says there are three events that are the shape of his whole life. One was... Um, uh, the uh, uh, his his brother's terrarium, 
or memory of his brother's terrarium uh, of moss and, and, and fake little forest and a biscuit tin. And uh, one was Squirrel Nutkin's um, The Sense of Autumn in Beatrix Potter's Squirrel Nutkin. And the third one was um, uh, from Tennyson, uh, Balder the Beautiful is Dead is Dead. Now, he says those three things, the effect of those three things are the shape of his whole life. And that, that is a, um, a, a thing that you get from Psyche, that from her earliest days, she's had this longing, and in Pilgrim's Regress, it's John looking at the, 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 uh, the island through the window in a wall, and he spends the rest of his life searching for this island. It, it's a big element in Lewis's um, thought, and her, the, the most horrid thing for Psyche is that her death, death would be mundane, you know, chained to the tree, eaten by wild animals, or dying of hunger, you know. Um, that, that, was the, that, was, that was the horror. Being eaten by the shadow brute, not a problem, you know. Because uh, um, that would be important. Um, and uh, then she comes back to her right mind about that, and she has this great line about uh, page 70. Um, When she's talking about how the fox says that the whole world is a city, then what's the city built on? There's earth beneath, and outside the wall doesn't all the food come from there as well as all the dangers? All things growing and rotting, strengthening and poisoning. You know, it's, it's Lewis's sense of the thick outside the, the city, outside the walls, outside civilization, there is this this more true or more necessary presence that she has had part of her life since she was um, since she was little. And then she starts to make sort of excuses for the gods. Maybe they are up to something that we don't know what they're up to. Um, uh, what else we had? Uh, um, she makes a comment, no herd of other beasts gathered together has so ugly a voice as man. Is that true? <laughs> well, men, it has to be a crowd. Well, this is a crowd, a herd of other beasts trumpeting, what are they, what trumpets? Elephants. Um, uh, horses or whatever. And no herd is more ugly than the sound of men in a herd. That's a metaphysical statement. Is yeah. it true, though? Well, maybe because like when we hear animals, um, you know, they're just they're 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 saying something, you know, but but we don't understand it, and it's just it's just the animal call. But when it's a bunch of people making a noise, there it's probably they're all talking at once, all shouting at once. All these separate wills. Expressing whatever mm -hmm. you know, I'll, riot or lynching or yeah, or all, all saying different things. There's confusion. And what was the uh, context of that statement? She's listening to the crowd down, uh, getting ready to take the procession out. I kind of wonder if part of that is just the nature of the crowd itself. Yeah, it might have been her mood. She's, she's at the time. a little bit. 
Oh, no, okay, you give her some. Larry Lewis is potentially saying that it becomes ugly when it's human beings that are behaving like animals. Or, or so in a herd it's, formation. It's, they're in a herd, so it's, it's not the properly ordered hmm. human gathering. It's, it's yeah, animalistic. So when, when you hear vo voices that are um, supposed to, you know, not to not be chaotic, to not be uh, instinctual and passionate in that way, it's ugly. Mm -hmm. But if you just hear some geese like honking, you're just like, oh, it's. That's what, Allison's that's point is also really good that you can understand what the people are saying, and you, so you can hear their bad thoughts, their evil intentions. Um, but at the same time, everything's like all overlapping. And, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think what Brennan had to say was was good too. It's just oral probably probably sees herself and psyche as being above all of these people who just want her dead um, so that, you know, she can be restored. And it's, yeah, passion. Oh, it's their passion coming out. They're, you know, more, you. more animal tendencies, I guess. Um, it kind of, it kind of reminds me of, um, or that, that moment when they're, you know, when they're all, you know, crowding around watching as, as the procession is taking place. Um, just their kind of their desire for the thing to happen remi reminds me of uh, in Brothers, Brothers Karamazov when uh, the, the atheist brother is mm -hmm. giving his uh, giving a speech about mm -hmm. uh, Jesus and Satan and everything and, um, and he's like uh, the whole world um, will turn will turn against the greatest thing when when there's you know, the question of bread on the table. Um, like, when... Uh, every, everybody's very high-minded and, and idealistic for a time, but then but then when something is at stake, or they're going hungry, or, you know, something, then then they'll do anything for that. Yeah. You can not follow me when you've had your filled with bread. You're filled with bread, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, another uh, very interesting claim She's making a comment about the nearest thing we have to a defense against them, against the gods, for their, but there is no real defense, is to be very wide awake and sober and hard at work, to hear no music, never look at earth and sky, and above all, to love no one. Now, that, that, that's the defense that Lewis talks about someplace. I couldn't think of where it was. It might be abolition of man. Uh, might be because he talks about the removal of sentiment from people, the removal of the true magnanimity of man, and um, that we try to create in the modern world workers who just know what to think about what they're told to think about and only that, and so you've just made drones in the, in the hive or worker bees or whatever, you, they, they don't want people with sentiment who, who have any ability like Psyche to look at the world with this desire and this longing for this other thing you just have to knuckle down, hard work, don't love anybody, don't look at beautiful things, don't listen to music. Um, that's, a, that's, how the gods, uh, that's how the gods get you. As soon as you start seeing... Well, she does it on the way up to the tree when she's having that moment. Can the, 
the was the heart delighted? Uh, how can you feel ugly when the heart meets the light? Oh, that Which was is, my favorite part. That's a that's a. Well, okay. So what? You say you're in Orwell's situation. You've got the real bad things have happened to you. Your sister's dead. You're going to find parts of her to bury. Kind of a grim task. You're ugly. And you're ugly as sin. And uh, and then the world just opens up. I mean, it's the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. And it's calling on you for the lighting. And it's how can you not dance? You know, uh, it's a... Uh, it, do you see something in that moment, then the, because um, that is right before they have to go down to that dark canyon thing mm -hmm. that's all broken and uh, chaotic, and then they get up to the tree, and then after the tree, they step down into this, another perfect vista, mm -hmm. you know, the perfect view down a long valley of beautiful things. Um, she doesn't think again, well, the gods came through for me. I was, they were tempting me with delight, then they tore it away from me with the, with the scene. Why doesn't she think of, well, once again, I'm being delighted. And then she meets Psyche, you know, uh, in that situation. Uh, it's like she's not, she's, she's, her bitterness is against the, this whole thing is about what I have against the gods. And so she's always picking, even when she recognizes they're calling to her for delight, and she's not responding by sheer will. Um, uh, she st now is not able to see what it... It actually turns around again and becomes delightful again that, uh, that she should credit. At the same time, she discredited. Uh, is, there, is there any part in... in uh, that passage that says that she's not enjoying it? She, she, she really is responding to it very well. She's mm -hmm. wanting to dip her face in the water, it's beautiful, etc. But she's not going through the, anal the analysis again. You know, when she started seeing the, the sun and the, the vista and all the rest, the sparkling fields, she said, this delight, I've got to resist. Now she's delighting again and now, maybe that she's converting. Maybe she's not challenging the gods anymore. That's yeah. too delightful. But She says, Obardia says, this may well be the secret valley of the god. And then she says, it's secret enough. And so maybe she's, she's kind of like, in her kind of struggle to not be joyful, she's she's just be A little snap snippy, a little sarcastic. A little. <laughs> yeah, like, like, uh, yeah, the gods would hide this away from us. Um. <clears throat> uh, well, Bardia tells her her desire to be slain by him in her sword lessons. That's women's talk. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. Not meaning to insult the ladies present, but women do have a tendency to be more depressed. Well, a little more dramatic. Yeah. Yeah. Dramatic yeah. in their Mm-hmm. Um, Slay me. And do you get a do you get a little bit of do you find your justice of justice um, for the king when Bardia tells him, you know, he gets along with all the working dudes just fine. He understands them, they understand him, but politicians, women and priests. 
sort of a bad collection of, and if someone's only been in politician, you know, women and priest category, you'd think the band's a complete buffoon, and, and but he's actually a good leader of men, you know, uh, understands men, um, good master. It's an, an interesting shift, I felt when I read it, because you feel the immediate shift, like she did when she saw her husband, father going out to war in armor. Mm -hmm. That was his world, that's what he did. Uh, and she almost came close to loving him. Um, yeah. uh, yeah. It seems there that Oral's, Oral's depiction is not the whole picture, and it's even inaccurate to some extent. It's based on the information that um, he uh, it. gives us there. Quietly. It seems that the king would probably be more torn up about having one of his own men um, thrown to the lions mm -hmm. than he would for Psyche. Mm -hmm. Because if he's a good master, then he has natural affection for his his vassals and his his hunters and his soldiers. Mm -hmm. um, but so that he wouldn't ha have the same reaction where he'd be relieved that you know he's only losing a daughter who's just, no, that's all she is to him is a daughter. Mm -hmm. Though he does stab his servant real easily, his favorite, you know. Uh, can't we go full bore with this guy being hey, a decent guy? Um, no, but I can have a few. A servant, a servant. But she's yeah. not a coward in the way that she thinks he is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what else? Um, sweat is better than philosophy. I like that quote. <laughs> I didn't. No, wasn't it about how like? I think it's true, but I didn't like it. <laughs> Sweat. As far as curing what ails you, you know, uh, if you've got your mind a whirl with things, it's probably better to chop wood than than uh, think about it. Um, well, uh, you know, some more things we could chat about, but I don't want to keep you unduly. If you want to light up something serious, you're more than welcome. You can turn on the fan. I'll turn off the recorder. So the people who are listening to this online get no more than this.